Welcome to another uh, episode uh, that we have just for you here tonight at ABN. My name is Diana Newman. I'm the Director of Admissions at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and we have a wonderful show for you tonight. Uh, the name of tonight's show is Islam and Slavery. And with us tonight, we have a special guest by the name of Dr. Bill Warner. Dr. Bill Warner has been a physicist, businessman, and professor. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Political Islam. He is the first person to use the scientific method to produce the first Quran that can be read and easily understood. He also made the other two texts of Islam, the Sirah and the Hadith, simple to read and understand. Dr. Warner has written a dozen books on Islam. He developed the first self-study courses on Islam, the Foundations of Islam, and a three-level training, a self-study course on political Islam that explains Islamic political doctrine. Dr. Warner is a renowned national and international speaker on the topics of Islamic doctrine and history. Dr. Warner, are you there? I am here, Diana, and glad to be here. How well, are you good. tonight? I'm doing well, thank you. It's good to have you on the show once again. Now, I do uh, know, Dr. Uh, Warner, that some might consider this topic controversial. Some might consider it something uh, to be taboo in Islam. But why don't we start the show off by you explaining to us why so many people are ignorant about Islam and slavery? Well, in America, there's only one view of history of slavery, and that was the evil white men on, e on wooden ships who went into the interior of Africa, captured slaves, and brought them back to be sold for great profit while they're being abused in North America and South America. That's sort of the standard theory. I call it the West Coast of Africa theory. Right. But when you read about history in general, we find that slavery was used by every civilization. And by the way, let us not pat ourselves too hard on the back and say, well, we've ended slavery. The reason we've ended slavery is we've always had rough, hard work to do, but today we have better slaves. They're called machines. So it was the advent of machinery that brought it, started bringing around the end of slavery. But we also have to say this, and this is something that most Christians don't know. It was Christians that ended slavery. Some, and I know that history in America associates Christianity with slavery, but it was Christians who eliminated slavery. It eliminated through the Civil War and also through Britain, uh, Wilberforce and others struggled to overcome and end slavery. And, and by the way, the, one of the reasons that everyone finally ends slavery on an ethical basis is this, is that if you put an ad in Craigslist looking for a slave, you're not going to get one. Nobody wants to be a slave. So that's, we only have one version of history. We don't include the fact that slavery existed in China, Japan, or anywhere else or if not slavery as such, other such terms. For instance, in the Middle Ages, a serf was bound to the land. So he wasn't a slave as such, but if you bought his property, you bought him with it. So it is a form of slavery. But it's a subject that people don't want to talk about, and America is very sensitive. I know I taught for eight years at an all-black university. Obviously, there's at least one other white person myself, but it was primarily a black student body they were very sensitive about the issue of slavery. And the issue that I told you, the West Coast of Africa theory, is what they teach there. But this never made sense to me because it was not inclusive enough in the sense of it didn't incorporate other forms of slavery. 
So that's a brief subject. Most people don't want to talk about it. Whites feel guilty about discussing it. But when I was reading uh, the Sirah and the Hadith and the Quran, I noticed that slavery were like slaves were like camels. They were just sort of props on the set of the theater of Muhammad. So I began to realize that there was a doctrine of slavery, not an accidental doctrine, but one that was well-formed. And so I wrote a book called The Doctrine of Slavery, an Islamic Institution. It's the only book ever written, to my knowledge, on the subject. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Warner. And you brought up uh, a point that I think uh, deserves special attention. You know, uh, one of the charges that's often alleged against the Bible is that the Bible contains slavery and that the, in the Bible, God sanctions uh, some of the things that we would attribute to the uh, slavery, at least here in America. But uh, what I would want to say is that what we see in the Bible is more akin to indentured servanthood and not necessarily American slavery. Do you want to make that distinction, Dr. Warner, between indentured servanthood and American slavery? Well, now you've brought up, I never thought a lot about this, but I do know that there were a lot of Irish people that were brought to America as indentured servants, and, uh, which is akin to slavery. But, you know, I'm not going to answer the question in full because I've not thought a lot about it, and I don't want to be caught badly reasoning here. Sure, sure. And let me uh, just go ahead and flush uh, the point out and then get to my... Uh, next question. So indentured servanthood was a situation in which uh, if someone owed debts to another and didn't mm -hmm. have the wealth or the money to pay for it, they would essentially hire their services out in the form of working their debts off. And so what we see in the New Test or what we see in the Old Testament when it comes to slavery, I mean, there's a, a plethora of passages in the Old Testament that speak about uh, the, the personhood, uh, the value of the, those who have been enslaved. And so it wasn't a system um, that was instituted to reinforce this idea that the slaves weren't persons or weren't um, uh, individuals worthy of dignity, whereas we see the exact opposite uh, in American slavery. Uh, black Americans uh, were not considered persons, were not considered uh, individuals of equal worth and dignity, and that's a huge distinction to be made. Okay. So I'll go ahead to the next question, Dr. Warner. Uh, what are the two kinds of slavery in uh, Islamic slavery? Well, there are two kinds because Islam is the religion of the slave. The very term Islam means to submit. And perfect freedom is defined as slavery to the Sharia. And Abdullah, a very common name in Islam, is means slave of Allah. So the whole concept that the perfect person is a slave, notice here that freedom of thought and freedom of ideas is not included here. So Slavery in Islam is viewed as a spiritual or religious virtue, if you will, because it's a giving up of everything of your own and just following the will of Allah. So that's one form of slavery. And as a matter of fact, Muhammad re re frequently referred to himself as the slave of Allah. By the way, intriguingly enough, his father's name was Abdullah as well. Before he became a prophet, his father's name was Abdullah. Just giving here a little background on the fact that there was a God called Allah in the Arabian Peninsula before Muhammad. Then we have another form of slavery. And this form of slavery is fully condoned within the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. 
Now briefly, in case no one's seen it before, the Sirah is the life of Muhammad, and the Hadith are the traditions of Muhammad. So there's a great deal of material here, and so that's what I pulled out to bring together the Islamic doctrine of slavery. So the two kinds of slavery are sort of spiritual slavery and submitting completely to Allah, and the other form of slavery is just what we think of slavery as being, people who are being abused because they can't defend themselves and, so, and on a permanent basis. Okay, thank you. Now, uh, why is slavery so important to Islam? Is slavery essential to Islam, or is it something that was added on later? Well, now we have to remember that Muhammad was born into a society which had slaves. We know this because even just as he became the prophet of Allah, we know there's cases of where slaves were converted to Islam by his preaching. The most famous one is Bilal. So slavery was already in Arabia before Muhammad came along. It's just that he made it an integral part of Islam. Now, one of the reasons it was so important was jihad is a war machine. War machines need to be fed. You need armor, you need horses, you need swords, you need people paid to fix and repair things. So how did Muhammad finance his jihad? Well, he financed it in two ways. The first way was through the theft of material belonging to others. These were jihad raids against caravans. And then we had another way in which he sold slaves and took the money and bought armor, horses, and swords and spears. So slavery was the financial institution, along with the theft of goods, that supported Muhammad's jihad. So its importance is it was the money that let him take over Arabia. Now, what about what does the Quran have to say about slavery? Is there anything in the, in the Quran that uh, one can appeal to to illustrate that this is something that Allah uh, sanctioned? I do know that there's one form of slavery in the Quran which we need to deal with called those whom your right hand possesses. Mm. That's the sword hand. And that's usually referred to female slaves. And it's said in more than one place that those you can have sex with those whom your right hand possesses. So that is one way that we see that slavery is included in the Quran. And I'm thrashing around here desperately in my mind trying to come up with another verse that in, says that slaves are allowed in Islam and all I'm coming up with are things in the Hadith and the Sirah. So I won't go further about slavery in the Quran, but I'm pretty sure if I had time off and could look in a book, I could find it. Sure. Well, Sorry to be short on you there. Oh, no problem. Let's talk about those, uh, those instances in the Hadith and the Sirah. Why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us about some of those? Well, they go on and on and on. For instance, it says that a slave who escapes from his master, his prayers will not be answered. Well, oh. that's kind of... Uh, I mean, think about that. How supportive of slavery can you be? And now then that I'm talking, I'm suddenly remembering that I do remember things in the Quran about slavery. One of them is it's freeing a slave as a virtue. Now, Islam, when it talks about slavery, says, oh, our slavery wasn't that evil kind of slavery that they had in America, that chattel slavery. No, our slavery was almost like just having a job that you couldn't quit. Uh, and so that's really the way they talk about it. They say, oh, you're supposed to treat your slaves well, you're supposed to clothe them well, you're supposed to treat them like a brother, which is an odd thing to say. I would never take a brother of mine and make him work for me for no money, but they say that. So these are some of the things that are said about uh, slavery in the Quran. 
there are things about uh, the fact that you, sh well, it, as I'm thinking about it more, there is a lot said about the virtue of freeing slaves. But let's find this out. What does it take to get a slave? Well, usually the, you get a slave because somewhere somebody harmed his supporters to the degree where he could be captured and he could no longer defend himself. A slave is defenseless. So here we have two contradictions within Islam. One is, oh, Islamic slavery was a virtue. They don't go ahead and explain why Islamic slavery was such a virtue that they've, they've obscured its source in the Sharia today. But so there we have every aspect of slavery is included in the Sharia, including sex slaves, which I find the most appalling form of slavery. Uh, what does the Sharia say about sex slavery? Well, there's more than one verse in the Quran which says that those whom your right hand possesses you can have sex with. Basically, they're talking about sex slaves. One of the most famous characters in the Sirah, the life of Muhammad, is Miriam, who is a fair-skinned Coptic Christian, and she had wavy hair. And so that's one of the things that's said is that she was one of his favorite sexual partners. And I think we covered this yesterday. Yeah. So the, uh, in case someone hasn't seen it, we'll go further with this. Since his favorite sex slave was a white woman, basically, although a Coptic Christian might object to being called white, I don't know. Light-skinned is what she was described as. So therefore, all through the centuries of the slave trade in Islam, and by the way, there was a slave market in Mecca that was closed in 1964, or three, I forget, and the highest priced slave was always a white woman. Now, there are other articles, by the way, in which other writers talk about, and there's a long discussion about which slaves, which types of people make the best uh, sex slaves. And some say, some don't always agree that it was the white woman. So there's other discussion about, oh, Ethiopian women are the best sex slaves. And I think another man argued for the Nubians as being the best sex slave. But the point we need to understand here is, is that sexual slavery was fully a part of Islam because Muhammad had sex slaves. So this is, uh, and by the way, in America, a great deal of evil is made about the fact that Thomas Jefferson might have had sex with, what was her name, Hemings, Sally Hemings. Mm -hmm. But if he'd only been a Muslim, see, no one could criticize him at all. Like, well, he was just doing Allah's will. It's interesting to see how these points of view change. Interesting. Now, what does this look like today, Dr. Warner? Can you talk about uh, Islam's uh, sex slavery today? Is, is that something that's still being practiced or has oh, that Oh, Lord, been... yes. Let's talk about is, some of that. Well, this is tragic. I mean, absolutely tragic. But Islamic State uh, fully uses sex slaves. As a matter of fact, there's a six-page article in Dubuque magazine in which they go into great length to point out that sex slavery is just fine, thank you, with Allah and Muhammad. They point out that every one of the companions of Muhammad, now companions here, for those who don't know, are somewhat like the apostles of Jesus or the disciples of Jesus. That is, these are very special people because they were very close to Muhammad. And the companions of Muhammad were considered the sunnah of what they did was also acceptable as what a Muslim should do. For instance, Abu Bakr, the first caliph, killed apostates. This is, since he was so close to Muhammad, this is viewed as almost just like Muhammad did this. So Dabiq magazine, Islamic State, claims, well, there was only one uh, 
companion of Muhammad who didn't have sex slaves. Now we know Muhammad handed them out like awards to his lieutenants. Uh, some king gave him four sex slaves. He kept one, Miriam, and he distributed the other one to different people. And these, this is all done so casually. Uh, and it almost sounds sanitary because Umar, when he got his sex slave, says, I don't need one more sex slave, gave it to his son. So these are passed around like, I don't know, just items of commerce. So it's the sex slave is treated very casually and it's just it's an everyday affair. But when we see what sex slavery is actually like, if you're a 10-year-old girl and you're raped 10 times a day, there's nothing charming, there's nothing anything other than about this except it's sexual torture. And uh, in the same way, the harem is a form, in my opinion, of some form of subjugation to sex because there's a great deal of history about Muhammad's harem, and the reason it's appropriate to talk about the harem here is that uh, his sex slaves were in the harem, uh, always creates jealousy. As a matter of fact, there was a huge jealousy event with Miriam because I forget which one of Muhammad's wives came in, and Muhammad was having sex with Miriam on her bed in her room. Woo-wee! Things went crazy. People were very upset, and all the wives got in a huge turmoil, so much so that Muhammad says, I'm taking a break from the whole harem. And he didn't go to the harem, I think, for 28 days. And this was over an event of jealousy about his preferring a sex slave. After that, by the way, he set her up in her own apartment somewhere else. And his sex slave, Miriam, had the only son that he had. His name was Ibrahim. When he died, Miriam, the sex slave, disappears from history. We don't know anything else about her. Hmm. Now, what's the virtue of slavery in Islam? What's the, what's the point of it? Is, do they see it as something that Allah, uh, that Allah requires of them? Do they think it's something that Allah rewards? What is the virtue of, I mean, because, uh, you know, from all uh, of the things that we've heard about, there's nothing virtuous about this, but what is it in Islam that sees it as something that's of virtue? Well, who can be a slave? A kafir. Hmm. K-A-F-I-R, the unbeliever, the infidel. So one of the virtues of slavery is, is it totally and completely subjugates the kafir. Now, since Allah despises the kafir, and Muhammad did everything he could to deceive and harm the kafir, the slave is evidence of the fact that jihad is working because it takes jihad to create slaves. And who is jihad practiced against? It's practiced against the kafir. Now then, the advantage here is that the only way to get out from being a slave, because when Allah says it is a virtue to free a slave, this does come from the Quran, what he says is, a believing slave. So look what we have here. We have a method of war in which you can capture somebody, and if you don't sell them for a profit, if, you, if they convert to Islam in the hope that they will be freed, then you've created a Muslim out of a kafir. This is enormous virtue. And as a matter of fact, Islamic State declares that this is one of the virtues of sex slaves, is that when they become pregnant, they frequently convert to Islam and become Islamic, they become Muslim wives. So do we see here the virtue? Sure, the virtue is it persuades people to become Muslim in order to get out of being a slave. Now, they had all kinds of slaves. One of the interesting things, by the way, about 
is that we know the different races of different slaves because it frequently mentions them. Blacks were used for heavy, hard work. And by the way, one of the interesting things about black slaves is, is that they were usually uh, castrated. I mean, not only the testicles, but also the penis was removed. So when whites were made eunuchs, only the, only the testicles were removed. Hmm. So the purpose for slaves was to do rough, hard work. It was to be also, Islam came up with an intriguing idea, which is the military slave. Now, this is a unique form of slavery. And imagine that it's tax day, and you're a Christian in the Balkans, and the tax collector is coming to get his tax. What he wants is your oldest son. Your oldest son will be taken away from you, taken to Turkey, where he will serve the, um, they don't call them caliphs, they call them, uh, oh, what do they call the Turks? Leader. Mm, it fails me at the moment. Anyway, the, ah, uh, darn. Anyway, uh, the, the, cap, the leader of, of the Ottoman Empire, they were his personal bodyguards and private soldiers. So here we have, this is so clever, it's insidious, that the Islamic State brings, issues a tax which can only be paid by Christians with their oldest son. The oldest son is taken from the house, taken to Constantinople, where he's trained to become a soldier. And who will he fight against? Why, Christians. So this is, this is incredibly clever use of power. Uh, Diana, I'll tell you one of the things that happens when you study Islam to the degree I have. You have a certain perverse admiration for Islam's concept of jihad. It is subtle, clever, devious, and incredibly powerful. So that's, one of the, that's uh, part of what slaves were used for. Okay. Now, do Muslims enslave other Muslims, Dr. Warner? Interesting question. They're not supposed to, but remember that if you're capturing slaves, you're making money when you sell the slave. Mm -hmm. Now then, if you're a Muslim and all the slave traders in Africa were Muslims, so let's say that you're running a little short on Kafir, Muslim, Kafir Africans. Well, now what would be the first thought that would come to your mind? Well, let's just capture these black folks and sell them for slaves. With the, because what you'll say is they're not really Muslims. It's interesting, but if you study Sharia law in Africa, you'll discover that there's an awful lot of law cases which are black jurists filing claims in court that a certain slave trader jihadist is, of all things, capturing Muslims and selling them for profit. Now, we know there's truth to this because some of the slaves that came to America were Muslims because they retain some vestiges of their religion. So, by the way, by and large, the white slave traders didn't like Muslim slaves because they found they cooperated too much together and they had to be separated upon sale. Mm. So this is part of, the, uh, part of what happens with slavery and in Africa, is that, yes, they would capture Muslims in order to make a profit. Can you imagine that? A man would sort of bend the rules of his religion to make some money? Well, of course we can. Well, that just seems to follow the example that Muhammad, <laughs> that Muhammad laid for for the Muslims. We see Muhammad in the Quran uh, uh, bending the rules all the time when he wanted to do something different than a previous revelation uh, allowed. So, as insidious as it sounds, it it sort of makes sense given Muhammad's actions. Well, let, let's let's take a step to the side and look at one of these because 
it's almost humorous, but it's not humorous at all, is that Muhammad developed a liking for his son and for his stepson, his adopted son's wife. Now he could not have her in marriage because she would have been his sister-in-law, and this violated Arab law of the family. We have to remember there were laws in Arabia before Muhammad. Sure. Now then, it turns out that a verse was revealed in which Allah said, you know, you do not have a son because an adopted son, there is no such thing as adoption. So you can have who you want. So Muhammad said this, his now no longer son, adopted son divorced his wife in order that she could be married to Muhammad. Now Aisha, Muhammad's favorite wife and youngest wife, said, my Lord is quick to grant you your wishes. So here's where the rules were changed in order that Muhammad could have another wife that he desired. Right. So yes, Diana, you're quite right. The, the, there are contradictions within the Quran, and some of them center around the fact that what Muhammad wanted changed, and so therefore, therefore the Quran granted him his change as he needed it. Another example of the Quran helping Muhammad out when he's, when he's got a problem is he attacked some Jews, and they couldn't, he couldn't drive them out of their fortresses. This was in Medina. And so he became angry, and he cut down and burned their palm trees because these Jews were date palm farmers. Mm. Well, this, all the, the non-Muslim says, oh, Muhammad, you're now a war criminal because Islamic, or not Islamic, but Arab war law said that you don't burn crops. Well, there's a verse revealed in the Quran that it was okay to burn the palm trees. So here we have a problem. Muhammad's accused of being a war criminal because he violated Arab war law. Now then Allah comes along and says, oh, no, 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 that was just fine to do. So no, you're quite right. As a matter of fact, Diana, it would be sort of interesting to pull together some senior thesis type paper of all the times that the Muhammad gets his will because Allah changes his mind. Right. Right. It's it, just, that would, I'm serious. That would be an intriguing article to write. Absolutely. It just seems to be uh, self-serving, you know, especially on <laughs> Muhammad's, from Muhammad's perspective. I don't know um, if it, it's as self-serving to other Muslims as much as it was to Muhammad, but it just seems to be a very self-serving uh, religion. And I think that has a lot of impl implications for their eschatology. But I'm going to come back with that point because we've got to take a quick break. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Coming soon, the fifth International Apologetics Week, starting November 9th, 2015. We'll broadcast through internet, satellites, and through antenna network televisions. Three shows per day, over 40 world-renowned apologists. Titles of the shows, The Deity of Christ, Biblical Doctrine, World Religions and Heresies, Science and Creation, Politics, Atheism, Islam, and more. Fifth International Apologetics Week, starting November 9th. Three shows per day, where? TrinityChannel.com. Click and watch live. For more information, call the numbers on the screen. ABN and Trinity Channel invites you to watch a special live debate. Ijazi Ahmed versus Dr. Tony Costa. The topic will be 
Was Jesus the Son of God or only the Prophet of God? The debate will be held October 9th, 2015, 7 p.m. Eastern, 12 a.m. Greenwich, and 9 a.m. Australian. Watch us live on ABN and Trinity Channel. Or visit our websites, trinitychannel.com and abnsat.com. Or for more information, call us at one of the numbers on your screen. Watch ABN on your TV. With the Chromecast stick, you can simply connect your phone to the television to watch shows. Download the ABN Sat app and click on the Chromecast button. Need help installing? Contact us at 248-416-1300. We are back on the show. We have with, with us tonight Dr. Bill Warner, and the topic of tonight's uh, show is Islamic slavery. Uh, now, Dr. Uh, Warner was making a really good point before we took uh, the break, and one of the things that I noticed, Dr. Warner, is that it seems to be the case that uh, you know Muslims will grant that paradise uh, will have Muslims will have everything that their hearts uh, can desire but it seems to me to be Muslim men Muslim men exactly and that's that's exactly my point and so whereas the Quran uh, here on earth for Muslim men permits uh, them to marry up to four wives in paradise they'll have 72 uh, whereas you know, it's not really clear what the reward of faithful Muslim women are. Um, in your own reading of, um, of the text, Dr. Warner, can you distill any rewards that a Muslim woman will have in paradise? She gets to be there with her husband. Um, and I, I mean, my goodness gracious, have you, have you ever read the descriptions of hell in the Quran? The, the, I always have maintained that the best writing in the Quran are the descriptions of hell. And I asked an, uh, uh, an apostate from Islam who's now a Christian missionary who grew up in Jeddah. I said, in the English language version of the Quran, the best writing is about hell. I said, how is it in Arabic? He says, oh, in Arabic, hell is even better. He says, the harshness and brutality in hell is much better conveyed by Arabic language. The point I'm making here is, is that a Muslim woman may not get 72 male sexual partners, but at least she's not in hell. Uh, so uh, that's just my point there. But you know, it is not clear, what the, other than not being in hell, what the virtues of uh, being a, a wife in paradise is. Now, there is one hadith in which it said that the wife is separated from the huris, H-O-U-R-I-S, and the Huris are nothing more than the perfect sex slave. Uh, there's, there's some enormous distance that is between the wife, or maybe the other two or three or four wives that a man has had, and his perfect sexual companions, the Huris. So, but you know, I'm, I'm telling you here, I'm not sure that other than avoiding hell, now I don't know there's a banquet table there, and maybe the wives will get that, there's also wine, which won't give you a hangover. It's like everything you couldn't do in, the, in this life, you get to do in the heavenly life. Isn't that interesting? Everything that would be considered advice here on earth seems to be maximized to its fullest in paradise. How paradoxical is that? Well, 
you and I both know that we think it's quite paradoxical. <laughs> but then again, it's my study of Islam in which I said Islam is based upon paradox because when you read the Quran, you very quickly are like, well, wait a minute, which is it? Is it this? Is it that? Right. And, and it, it is, Islam has two fundamental principles, submission and what I call dualism. There's always two answers to every question. Hmm. And so uh, dualism is just throughout the entire book and I claim that it's the fundamental principle of Islam and it cannot be resolved. Now, Dr. Warner, uh, everything that you have said thus far indicates to me that slavery is not a wonderful thing. So what <laughs> is <no>. it? <laughs> the, but there's a myth of Islamic uh, slavery being wonderful. What is that about? Well, look, you have a slight problem here if you're a Muslim. Muhammad had slaves in every shape, form, and fashion. Slaves are addressed in the Quran. And so since you're stuck with slavery, don't we need to uh, put some gold leaf on it, you know, uh, try to make it look better, uh, and just sort of claim that, oh, our slavery was never harmful to anybody, uh, as if cutting off your testicles and your penis is not harmful, or being a sex slave. Because any, any woman, when she's captured, even if she's married, her marriage, because you see a Muslim can't have sex with a married woman, so when she's captured, her marriage is immediately annulled. So mm. you're a woman, you're out with your husband, they kill your husband, you're, or let's say your husband is alive but wounded, you're captured, and so now then you can be taken, and you can be used for sex, because now then you're no longer married, so therefore you can have, they can have sex with you. Now, you, how they put this, make this look good is feeble, but they do have to come up with some kind of way about because look, we're talking about Muhammad here. Right. So it's got to be like, well, to have been Muhammad's slave would have been a wonderful thing. No. Being anybody's slave is not wonderful at all. I mean, this same when, this, when these same arguments are made about American slavery, they'll laugh you out of the room. Well, if, if you were a house slave at Andrew Jackson's house, you wore nice clothes uh, and so forth, and so therefore slavery wasn't so bad. Well, they'll, like I say, they'll laugh you out of the room if you say that about American slavery. But when Muslims say that, people go, oh, well, that's nice. So you all treated your slaves really well. How can you treat a slave really well? Well, you cannot abuse them, that's for sure. You can turn to them when they're sick. But as one of Andrew Jackson's slaves said when it was commented upon the fact that he wore clothes that were much nicer than, a white, than the average white man did, he said, yes, but I can never leave. I am not free. And it's true that I eat good food, I sleep in a warm room, but I cannot leave. I cannot make critical decisions for myself. So dress it up as you will. Try this experiment. Put an ad in Craigslist and say, wanted, slave, for the following work. See who calls up and, or who sends you an email and says, you know, I've always wanted to be a slave. Nobody wants to be a slave because you don't have freedom. But then again, freedom is the fitna of Islam. That is, it is the confusion. Freedom is not a virtue in Islam at all. Slavery to the doctrine of Islam is what is good in Islam. And, and you know, Dr. Warner, it seems the romanticization of slavery in Islam seems to defy rationality. I mean, we're talking, certainly when it comes to, to women who uh, were possessed, uh, we're talking about women whose husbands likely were murdered brutally, 
likely whose family was murdered brutally, and that same woman was required to be intimate with the very people who killed her family. And so this romanticization of the whole issue defies all rationality in, in my estimation. Oh, Diana, there are women today that we don't know their names who, because they're Yazidi or Christian, who are being raped continually simply because they're not Muslim. And you can understand why a woman would finally say, okay, there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet, stop raping me. So the slave process does indeed convert Muslims, convert Kafir into Muslims. But, I mean, think of the trauma, think of the utter total brutality of this. I mean, I suppose it gets worse. You could be crucified, which is what they're doing to Christians now, Islamic State. But, I mean, and, and where's... One of the big problems I have with all of this is that I strongly associate sex with love and affection mm -hmm. and kindness. Right. Right. So to me, this whole thing is like totally twisted out of any kind of human behavior for me. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, this is why we have to continue praying for our Muslim uh, brothers and sisters. We have to keep praying and asking the Lord to break through from their veil of darkness so that they would see um, that there is, um, there is an evil that's attached to Islam um, that, that we just really need to be, they need to be cognizant of. You know, you're talking there suddenly is that I just had an insight. As you know, female genital mutilation is practiced in a lot of Muslim countries. And is this not within itself almost a form of slavery? Because the woman is completely subjugated. Why is her clitoris removed? Well, that way she won't be getting, feeling want to have sex with anybody else. Is that not a form of slavery? Absolutely. So, I mean, this, I mean these things, you know, I guess one reason people don't want to talk about this, although I'm kind of a professional at it, but I don't care how many times I talk about slavery and female genital mutilation, I'm like, it's always a fresh slap in the face in terms of like, this is terrible. This is terrible. And so, I mean, I guess that's my reaction to it, but it's, yeah. it, and yet this is part of the doctrine of Islam. Yeah, and see, I was just about to ask you uh, about that, Dr. Warner. Where, uh, either in the Quran, Hadith, Sunnah, where do we find female genital mutilation? Well, we find it not in the Quran, but we find it in the Sirah, okay. in which, in one of the battles in the Sirah, uh, one of the Muslims says to, a, to his opponent, who's from Mecca, he says, come here, you son of a clitoris cutter. That's an actual line from the Sirah. Now, Muhammad and Aisha, I'm sorry, Aisha gives a hint that she was, had female genital mutilation because she talks about when is it necessary to take a cleansing bath when the circumcised parts have touched. Now, circumcision for a man has no relationship to circumcision for a woman. Right. And we also know there's other cases in which Muhammad doesn't condemn it but he, and he doesn't really condone it, he just lets it be there. So it's doesn't, it is not obligatory to have the clitoris removed, but it is acceptable to have that. Okay. Because the man could have made four square stand and says, no, this is not to happen at all. But when he had opportunity to deal with the question, he did not. 
Okay, so it's not something that is in one of the revelations of Allah no. simply because it's not in the Quran, but we do find it in the Sirah, which is a normative text within Islam. So it is part of the Sunnah. The acceptance of it is part of the Sunnah, but it is not obligatory. Right. And you have to pray five times a day, that's obligatory. Right. But we do know this, that Western countries have tolerated this because they will let the women take... By the way, the thing that is the most puzzling thing to me about female genital mutilation is this. Mothers take their daughters to other women to have it done. How could you do that? Mm. I mean, I have daughters, granddaughters. I mean, I, I, how could you do that? My wife, if you told her we need to do it, she'd be like, what, are you crazy? <laughs> That's the least of what she would do. She would ask you if you're crazy, and that would be the least of what she would do. She would have a, a, a horrible reaction to a suggestion such as that. I would hope. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, we sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier, Dr. Warner, but talk to us about how Islamic slavery shaped slavery in the U.S. Is there a connection? Let's put it, this correction is this strong. If there had not been Muslim slave traders in the west coast of Africa, there would have never been the slave trade in America. But let's deal with something right here. Some people think that the slave traders, uh, the, the, the evil white captain on the wooden ship sailed up to the coast of Africa and went into the bush and captured these people and brought them out. That's not the way sailors work. What does a sailor do? They sail ships. They're like truck drivers. Truck drivers do not come into Nashville and make automobiles and then carry them on the back of their truck in order to sell them somewhere. No, they pick them up. They have, there's been paperwork filled out. The point I'm making here is truck drivers don't go get the goods except they're in a warehouse where they load them onto the truck. They don't manufacture them, they don't collect them. Because the point is this, even if you did adopt that model, how would it be possible for if this happens all the time and millions of slaves are being brought to North America and South America, if you're an African, when you say, don't live near that coast, they're gonna come take you away. So the theory is not even acceptable, even slightly, that this would work this way. No, they showed up with money, they got a bill of sale, there were invoices, and they picked them out of the slave pens. This is very clearly written. And by the way, the, the, beyond this, we have, there's a very famous biography of an of a Arab who traveled throughout Africa, Ibn Betatutu or something like that. I don't really remember the name. And he records the capturing of slavery and the method of jihad. So, and oh, and by the way, the same man, this biography quite, is quite popular in the Arab world. What does he take with him? Well, he takes camels and a sex slave. So we know that slaves were taken on the east coast of Africa, the north coast of Africa, and the west coast of Africa. But the point is this, without the Muslim slave trader on the west coast of Africa, there would have been no slaves brought to America. So Islam is critical to slavery in America, and this is something that is not taught in any school. Great. So, you know, Dr. Warner, there could be someone watching tonight who, who for whatever reason, uh, will continue to think that slavery 
is not uh, an essential practice within Islam. They might say something uh, like that was a practice that was um, enjoined into by people who weren't committed to the doctrines and the teachings of Muhammad. That being the case, um, can you tell us about some of the words for slave in Arabic? Of course, we know that the Quran is the first book that's written in Arabic. How many words for slave are there in Arabic? You know, this is interesting. To my knowledge, I'm the first person who ever went through the Arabic dictionary to pull out all of the words reporting to slave. And I found 37 of them. Now, Diana, what does having